When you walk in the Highville Chicken, you get the story in your hand. You walk out with the story, not just a bag of chicken, to make sure people walk away with something tangible in their hand. They can refer to that story and they see that African-American family on that picture and they know, okay, this is where National Hot Chicken started. It started with Prince family. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Almost exactly 100 years ago, my mother was born. She grew up in Europe, in Poland, in a family that was quite poor, but very loving. Central to her family, and this was true for me as well, throughout my life, is food. My brothers and I were hearty eaters, to be sure, and uh, we seemed to be talking about food all the time, what we ate, what we're about to eat, what we're going to eat, what we want to eat, and as often as anything else, and it turns out that we keep talking about that whenever we get together. My daughter, while a much healthier eater than I was at her age, by far, is also a foodie. Now, not a foodie in the Michelin three-star mode or the latest cool place that just opened, but in a more basic, fundamental way. The way that people live in everyday life, where quality and people matter. Maybe that's really what a foodie is. And maybe as COVID has made it so difficult for all of us to go to new restaurants, actually to go to any restaurants, and instead we've been cooking up a storm at home, and baking up a storm at home as well. The definition of what a foodie is may actually change. It might change to the food we know and remember as we grew up and as our parents grew up and how those recipes and ideas get passed along through the generations. Maybe being a foodie is not getting the latest, greatest new thing, making something, even if we change various ingredients to our preferences, something that someone in your family made 25 years ago or 50 years ago, that's really what it's all about. Maybe that's what a foodie is. And I really like that idea. You know, the more I think about it, the more I like it. And this is from someone who has really gone out of his way. I've gone out of my way for years to find the newest new cool place in New York or London, Sydney, Australia, Singapore, you name it. Wouldn't it be interesting if more and more people find themselves returning to a more basic way to think about food? And this is food that's not going to be boring. It's not going to be old hat. It will actually be the true definition of what it means to be a foodie. It will be delicious, not ostentatious. It will be mostly good for you. And if it isn't, that's okay too. And it will give you pleasure and joy. I really like this idea. Which brings me to my guest on this episode of the SIDCast, Kim Prince. Have you ever heard of Nashville hot chicken? And yes, it's true that this has really become a big thing for foodies over the last few years. You might know the name Prince. It is actually royalty in the world of Nashville hot chicken because it was a member of the Prince family that actually first invented the entire dish decades and decades ago. Kim Prince opened Hotville Chicken in Los Angeles and she opened it not all that long before COVID hit. And how did she respond? How did the community around her respond? How does it make her think about the business and her future? We talk about all these things, but we also talk about the legacy and history of her family and her family's role in her restaurant and historically as well. This is a story about a woman who, after doing different things in her career, has really gone back to her roots, her family's roots, 
and brought Nashville hot chicken, the genuine, real, authentic Nashville hot chicken to LA. I want to say one more thing about Kim Prince and Hotfield Chicken. It's easy to just listen and think, well, you know, here's a restaurant and Kim opened it and it was thriving for a while. Now it's struggling, but surviving. And, you know, I think it's going to go back to thriving again, hopefully in the not too distant future. And that's a story, but it's really not the story. I mean, how many of us have grown up eating certain dishes at our mother's or grandmother's or our father's or uncle's for that matter? I bet just about everyone listening right now can think of that dish, that special dish someone special in your family made and makes maybe year after year. And if you close your eyes, you may even be able to think about the taste of that dish. If I close my eyes, I can taste many of those special dishes that my own mother made for years. Here's what I'm getting at. Taking an idea or a concept, a product, a dish, a recipe, and actually making a business out of it, that's a really big deal. It's so easy to take for granted because we see restaurants all around us all the time and we see all sorts of other businesses for that matter all around us all the time. But someone had to have the courage to go and do this, to go and create a business. And that is something worth recognizing. Now, in this case, Kim Prince and Hotfield Chicken, she's continuing a family legacy. In my conversation with Kim, I didn't detect any nervousness about that family legacy Maybe nervousness and concern, you know, about COVID and the effect and impact on the community and her family. Yes, that's for sure. Respect for the challenges of opening a restaurant, running a restaurant successfully, absolutely. But not actually a great deal of worrying that maybe some of us might have when we take on a family heirloom, if you will, and expand it in a public way where anyone can see success and failure. You know, once again, I'm just so impressed with entrepreneurs who think about risk differently than most other people. Okay, that's enough about my thoughts for now. Well, actually, one more thing. One of the best things my mother ever made was potato kegel. It's a kind of potato pie made in the oven with onions, eggs, flour, and of course, lots and lots of potatoes. It's kind of a peasant food because the ingredients are, you know, they're basic. They're not very expensive. They're readily available. But the taste, I know that taste and I don't think I'll ever forget it. The taste, the texture as you bite into it, the steam coming out of the pan when it's first served, and that incredible flavor that comes through in every bite, you know, that, that potato and onion combination uh, with just enough frying in it. What is that flavor? The flavor of love. I'm planning to make this potato kegel in honor of my mother's would have been 100th year using the same oven pan she used. And it will be perfect. There hasn't been a lot of perfection around lately, but when we cook our family's food traditions we create a little oasis of perfection, made all the more powerful by our need for just such a respite, a perfect respite. Welcome to the SIDCast. Sid Finkelstein here, and I am here with Kim Prince in Los Angeles. Hi there, Kim. Hi, Sydney. It's great to have you on the podcast. And uh, I know we're talking on a Monday because your restaurant is open every day but Monday. What do you usually do when you're not talking to reporters or podcasters on a Monday? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked that. On a Monday, I usually try to at least get an extra hour of sleep, but I do come into the restaurant. I come in and I do a lot of administrative office work. I try not to be here for too long because when customers see that my car is here or that the lights might be on and there's any activity at all, they start tugging on the door and the phone starts ringing. But I do my best to not cook any chicken. <laughs> I'm not frying. 
That's very funny. So they see the car and they say, okay, Kim's in town. She's in the restaurant. Let's get some chicken. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Even though they know the restaurant's closed that day because these are probably regulars you're talking about. You have a lot of regulars, don't you? We have a ton of regulars here at Hot Bell Chicken, but we're a new restaurant still. And we just opened December 17th of 2019 at this location. And people are still getting introduced to our presence here. Um, so there's a lot of people who don't know that we're closed on Mondays, but uh, we're, they're learning. They're learning. You're teaching them. So for people who don't know what Nashville-style hot chicken and specifically Hotville chicken is, could you explain it? Absolutely. Well, Nashville hot chicken, the origins and the story goes back to the 1930s with my family, the Prince family, my great-great-uncle Thornton and his brothers of whom Boyd Prince is one of his brothers, which happens to be my great-grandfather. These men were very, very handsome, and they had a lot of women that uh, corralled around them. And so as a result of some late-night carousing, my great-great-uncle had a young lady who got back at home for uh, being out a little too late, and she put cayenne pepper all over his fried chicken to get back at him, and he liked it. Sense of revenge. It was supposed to burn his tail, but uh, it uh, actually backfired on her. And as a result of that, they started a business called the Barbecue Hot Chicken Shack in the 1930s. Uh, we dated it back to 1936. And so it's spicy fried chicken. It's not a spice that we add to it, it's in it. And that makes all the difference. And Nashville, Tennessee, is the capital of hot chicken. Hot chicken is just, it's a, I call it fiery file. And uh, it's a blend of the spiciest, hottest peppers on the planet and a concoction and process of frying that is all our own and unique to the Prince family. And there's so many out there that have tried to mimic and duplicate, imitate uh, the style of hot chicken. So natural hot chicken is a global thing now. But it started in Nashville. That's what I call it Nashville, the garden eating of hot chicken. And, uh, and I brought it to the West Coast and then introduced it to, uh, to people in L.A. I can't say that I was the first because uh, people have been trying it all over. But uh, we've got some great compadres mm-hmm. in the business here in Los Angeles that do version of Nashville hot chicken. But, yeah, that's what Nashville hot chicken is. I mean, if you like fried chicken, you're going to love Nashville hot chicken. <laughs> okay, so crazy hot chicken. And I mean, I like spicy food, but I have a feeling this is another, like a really another level of heat. I mean, people love it. Your restaurant is very successful. The concept and the idea of Nashville hot chicken has been written up in many foodie magazines and, and websites and yours as well. But still, I have to ask, isn't it a little crazy to make food so, so hot that it's like burning your mouth out as you're eating it? I would say, yes, it is crazy to have food that's just going to burn your mouth, just be like a form of pain and punishment. And I think that's what this mistress intended. But keep in mind, you've got to have a recipe that's flavorful. And that's what sets us apart. Our chicken is flavorful no matter what heat level you get it in. So if it's just West Coast Plain, it's going to be a good West Coast Plain fried chicken. The seasoning is all in it. And if you go... Cali Mild, or if you go Music City Medium, which is hot to most, 
And then our mm-hmm. Nashville hot is too hot for all but about maybe five people that we serve it to all the time. But yeah, most of the people who do try it, their comment is, it's really spicy. It's burning my lips. It's burning my tongue. It's really hot. But I taste all the seasoning. I taste all the flavor in it. And that's what I love about it. And it makes me jump in and take another bite. Take another bite. And I'll tell you one thing, Sydney. I tell people all the time, close your mouth when you chew. You ever had like a <laughs> grandparent or a parent tell you, hey, close your mouth when you chew your food? Yeah. One thing I discovered, when people are eating spicy food, you know, you're trying to gasp for air and you're taking in these deep breaths. Well, all that does is intensify the heat on your tongue and in your mouth. And so close your mouth and chew the food. And that helps. That's just one tip. That's fine. <laughs> That's a good tip. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. I can understand why their mouth is open because they're trying to get air. <laughs> right. You said for right. breathing. I didn't think about it for breathing. I thought just get some air to cool me off. That's funny. I don't know whether you've ever talked to or been connected anyway with Chinese cooking, but you know, there's Szechuan and there is a cult of people that love this ultra super spicy, like in Queens in New York, there are a few places that The food editor of the New York Times is a big fan and has written about it over time. And so it's not just Tennessee or the Southern cooking in the U.S. There are, and I'm sure there are others. I mean, I have friends from India and there could be some very very spicy Indian food. Have you ever compared notes with any other chefs or people from these other uh, communities about uh, spicy food? I have. I have. And I'm a heat enthusiast, too. I call people who are really into spicy food heat seekers. Heat seekers, that's what I call them. And one thing about people that like spicy food and they're looking for the next, uh, you know, adrenaline rush, and they're looking for the, like the next challenge. The difference culturally with different foods like Korean spices and Indian spices uh, is the type of peppers that you use. Now, ours is a raw ground pepper. It's dried and then ground and then that's when we use it. It's not a smoked pepper. And so I've been trying to study for the last couple of years, the types of peppers that we're using. And when I say we, I mean like the whole culinary industry, when we're using different peppers, it's how they treat that pepper. Some peppers are soaked in vinegar and then dried. Some peppers are pulled off the vine and smoked right away without being dried. So it's just different processes. I find that the peppers that we use, and they're very, very hot on the Scoville charts. We've got ghosts and reaper. I mean, I can name some of the scorpion chilies. But, you know, there's so many peppers out there that are common in all these different types of culinary dishes out there that use spices. But um, it's how they treat the pepper before they actually cook with it. That's where it differs then. Yeah, that's the difference. At Hotville, we don't use any smoked peppers. If anybody who knows how to cook with peppers. They'll understand what that means. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe without like doing a demonstration of the different types of yeah, peppers sure. and looking None. at them. Like that's a conversation in itself. I think we talk a long time <laughs> about that. Yeah, that'll be a good conversation for the nerdy, uh, high-end foodie type, which I'm borderline. I can't cook anything like that, but I love uh, smoked peppers, in fact. First time I ever got, I was in San Francisco. You know, the Ferry Building is this foodie mecca that has just got really great purveyors and they have a farmer's market two or three times a week. And there was this guy that came in from one of the farms and he had his own peppers and he smoked them. And I bought a little package and I still, every time I go back there, which has not been for a while, given where we're at in the fall 2020, but um, yeah. And I would put them into things like chili or stews or soups and they'll disintegrate. They, They won't add the type of kick 
um, of kind of raw spice that you're talking about, not even close, but they do add a warmth, a warmth to it, uh, mm -hmm. to the dishes. And, uh, Again, in the old days when people actually came to our house to have dinner with us uh, and, and I'd make something like that, they would love it. They, they didn't know what the secret ingredient was. Now I'm telling the world what the secret ingredient, but that's okay. I'm not, I'm, I, I, I'm not, I'm not in business. Um, you are. And that brings me to my next question, which is, uh, and you've kind of alluded to this. There's a lot of places that sell Tennessee hot chicken. Oh, yeah. Your family uh, the Prince family is really the originator of this idea. So I just have to ask you whether, you know, how, how do you feel about that? Because there's a lot of copycats out there, frankly, in Tennessee and L.A. and probably all over the world, that, that or certainly America, where you can get hot chicken. That's very true, Sydney. I I have to say that at first I'm flattered. I, I If I could speak on behalf of the Prince family and those before me and and in my current generation, my aunt Andre Jeffries, who is in Nashville, Tennessee right now, and she is the face of Nashville hot chicken and its origins. Um, she She's my dad's sister. And uh, I have to say that, you know, being with her and having that same question posed to both of us, we, our jaws drop. We have this like, ah, moment. Like we can't believe that something as a simple dish that was loved by Nashvillians only, it was kind of like their own little secret and nobody really knew about it. And then for it to be mm -hmm. you know, on a global scale now, we're surprised all the time by getting emails and messages in the mail and, and cards and, and, and pictures of all these different places all over the world, literally, that have Nashville stamped on it. And then it says hot chicken next to it. And I mean, I, I kid you not, we get emails all the time of you know, some new place that's been open or some customer that went to one. You know, it's in China, Australia, in Korea, uh, Belgium, in the, the UK. I got an email just this morning from someone in London asking me about collaborating on some Nashville hot chicken. So uh, I don't think that my ancestors being my great grandfather, my great, great uncles and my great, great aunts who ran the original location. I don't think that they ever imagined that that little dish would be <laughs> all over the world. Now I literally don't think they would have imagined it. So I, sure. I think that they applaud. I mean, we're flattered. I will say that I have the utmost respect for anyone who really does their research and they also pay homage and honor the fact that it came from Nashville and it started with the Prince family. There's a lot of other places out there that make no mention of it. They don't know the story. Uh, I just visited a place here in Southern California. I won't say where and I won't say name of the business, but I was just there a few days ago. And when I inquired about Nashville Hot Chicken on their menu, the workers had no clue of the story of why they call it Nashville hot chicken, where it came yeah. from. They just know that, oh yeah, people really, really love it. So our boss put it on the menu and people ask for the sandwich all the time, but they don't have a clue on any piece of it. They've never been to Nashville. So that's a little disappointing. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know what that is, what that kind of reminds me of? It's a totally different example, but there's something here. You know what people have always said about Kleenex, right? Kleenex is a company, is a brand. They make tissues, but we call it Kleenex. There's so many companies that make that. And so the brand name has entered into the common usage. And I think there's even been some court cases about that, which might be worth considering for you in that once something comes into the public usage, you start to lose some of the power of the brand itself, uh, or at least the right to call yourself unique and keep anyone else from doing that, which is a bit of a scary thing. But that's what happened with clean. That's what it kind of reminds me of in, a, in an odd kind of way. Yeah. Well, you know, Sydney, you know. Uh, to add to that, I like to think that, you know, same thing as Philly steak and cheese. No one can mm-hmm. own Philly steak and cheese because it's its own food concept, but it's different from the Dodger dog. You know what I mean? So when you mention the word branding, that makes all the sense to me because, you know, Hotville chicken, Nashville style hot chicken, and Prince's hot chicken, those are brand entities all on their own. Uh, the same with other major brands like the KFC for one, Kentucky Fried Chicken. There's new ones that have been spawning all over and they're growing by the dozens. Uh, I imagine with their growth model, they're making a lot of money. And it kind of like pivots the tone of the conversation as I answered the question that she had is it's more so why we do it the way we do it and the audience that we're targeting. You know, Nashville style hot chicken to me personally is a legacy project. This is all about the Prince family and the growth of the Prince family legacy, expanding it into just beyond the borders of the state of Tennessee here in the United States, but beyond. And um, Hotville Chicken is set up to grow. And I'm doing it for my family. And Hotville Chicken, we're doing the most authentic Nashville-style hot chicken you can get here in Los Angeles. And then wherever these other places that we're scouting and looking into going to and opening up new locations and food truck and rolling that out, we're going to introduce a lot of people to authentic Nashville style hot chicken versus the stuff that says Nashville hot chicken on a menu at some yeah. food chain out there, some chain that's, <laughs> oh God. I understand. Those are the ones I kind of laugh at because actually when I try Nashville hot chicken at so many different restaurants and fast food chains that have jumped into the Nashville style hot chicken game, I have to honestly say they're not bringing it. You can quote me on that. <laughs> Well, we're recording this, so you have been quoted. Yeah, I would actually challenge them to like, come on, if you're going to use the word Nashville hot chicken on your menu, bring some heat with it. Because that's what Nashville style hot chicken is. It's hot. Yeah, I love what you said about legacy, a legacy project. Obviously, family is so important to you. Could you say a little bit about it? Because you have members of your family, I think, or extended family, that have even worked in your own kitchen in Los Angeles at Hotville. Absolutely. Here at Hotville Chicken, one thing that is required by anybody with the Prince family name, we work in the restaurant from the youngest to the oldest. If you are able-bodied to get through the door, you can make your way into the kitchen. You can fold some napkins. You can mix some flour. You can wash some dishes. You can recycle some, flatten some boxes. That's what's required by us. When I fly to Nashville, Tennessee, and I visit Prince's Chicken, and that's like the first stop as soon as the plane lands, that's where we go. And within a few minutes, we're in the kitchen, we're helping, we're changing the toilet paper rolls out. We find ourselves working. And that's how I grew up as a pickle bucket girl in the original restaurant. You know, my earliest recollection is 40 something plus years ago, 
right in Metro Center, Nashville, Tennessee, where the Barbecue Hot Chicken Shack was located, which was the original location. Back, oh my gosh, this was like the 70s or the early 80s, I want to say. Now I'm telling my age. But my parents would take us there and we'd be there all day and you had to work. You had to cut pie. You had to, you know, get some spoons out. You had to get pickles out, which is something I did all the time. And here at Hotville Chicken here in Los Angeles, my nephews work here. My daughter works here. My twin sister, she comes to town almost every month to work a few days. My brother, my oldest brother, Martin Prince, he's here a couple of times a week. And I can name all of them. My brother, Daniel, he comes from Las Vegas to come help out at the restaurant. My parents in Nashville, Tennessee, they fly out here to help with the restaurant. And this started when I was just a pop-up. The family is yeah. very present. We are very present. And then as an extension of my biological family working in the restaurant, we have all these adopted type of cousins and aunties and uncles that come and help out at the restaurant. So we call everybody kinfolk. And when you come to Hotville Chicken, you'll see that we wear name tags to say Cousin Pam, Cousin Jordan, Uncle Martin, Nephew Jojo, <laughs> Nephew Levi. And then my daughter, her name tags is Little Kim. And so um, <laughs> she was like, Mom, I'm not a cousin. And I'm like, yeah, you're not a cousin. So what do we put on your name tag? And then one of the workers here just decided to call her Little Kim. And so uh, it's a work family environment. And so while workers here may not be blood relatives, they're working alongside a true Prince family member, a third, fourth, fifth generation descendant of the original Gordon Prince, Boyd Prince, John Henry Prince, Will Prince. I mean, Mamie Bell and there's Aunt Maggie Bess and <laughs> Aunt Fanny. My great-great-grandmother, Mary, my great-great-grandfather, Thornton II, those family members are who started this. And it's just in our blood, we bleed hot chicken and we bleed great work ethic. And that's what we're teaching down here, too. And then people who come in, our customers are kinfolk, and they're a part of the whole process, too. So this is so interesting because, first of all, it's wonderful to hear. It's a throwback to be sure, but it raises an interesting question because you alluded earlier to, you know, exploring opportunities to grow, and that's part of what you're all about. So as you open up presumably more restaurants at some point in some other cities, and it could be anywhere, and America could be anywhere in the world for that matter over time, it sounds like you got a lot of people in your family, but still... They're not all about to start moving to different places, I assume. How do you keep or how do you think you're going to keep? Because you haven't done it yet. It's all in planning. But how are you thinking about keeping that kinfolk, to use your term, right? That family connection that's so central to what you are today as you start to move to different places, different locations? Well, I'll tell you this. The game plan of growing the business and scaling it out is while we have these family members who are working here, I call this location in Los Angeles our flagship. And those family members that I just named, all those family members that come in, they all have a vested interest in opening additional hot deals. They all don't live in Los Angeles. If you remember, Daniel comes from Las Vegas. My twin sister comes mm -hmm. from the North Bay area. Our brother comes from way west of Los Angeles in Ventura County area. So those family members who are coming here, they're also training here. This is like a training mm -hmm. ground for them. Over the course of the years, going from a pop-up into a brick and mortar, 
they've been a part of that same journey. So we're all learning and growing the business together, technically, right? I would be remiss if I failed to mention my business partner, Greg Doolin. He is another legendary family here in Los Angeles that works in the soul food business. He has been engrafted into the Prince family. The Doolin family has a history all its own that dates more than 40 years of being in the restaurant game. Uh, Aunt Kizzy's Back Porch, famous soul food restaurant, first of its kind west of the 405 here in L.A. Mr. Adolph Doolin, he's known as the king of soul food, the late, great Adolph Doolin. Well, my business partner happens to be his oldest son, Gregory Doolin. They own Doolin Soul Food and Doolin Soul Food Kitchens. I have learned so much about family business and orchestrating how to operate a restaurant here in Los Angeles, which is not easy to do. Los Angeles water is different from Nashville waters. <laughs> and the water is going to make a big difference for the chicken? The water makes a difference for the chicken, the chicken when you're operating in a major capital city like Los Angeles. It's this that it's the moves and the shakes. You got to know who the right people are. And I got introduced to what running a business in Los Angeles means through my business partner, Greg Doolin, because he's been successful at it for the past 30, almost 40 years now. And so he's integral in the formation and the shape of what Highville Chicken is today. But my family members who are interested in opening and have been working around Nashville Hot Chicken, they started at Princess Chicken, the original barbecue hot chicken shack in Nashville, Tennessee. They, too, are the ones who are going to help get our legacy project into the mouths of other people in other parts of this country. I have a brother in Dallas, Texas. And so the game plan and strategy would be to continue to grow the business through those family members. And beyond, we don't have outside investors. We've been approached by many, but right now we're keeping it within the family, keeping it to ourselves. And we're just mm -hmm. spreading that love and that legacy and making sure people know the true story of what Nashville style hot chicken is. We want to yeah. make sure they know it. So when you walk in the Highville Chicken, you get the story in your hand. You walk out with the story. Not just a bag of yeah. chicken. But you walk out with the story. We have these incredible, I call them church fans. Our menu is two-sided and it has the story of Nashville Hot Chicken on one side and a picture of the original family on that. And then on the opposite side is our menu and it helps cool people down so you can fan yourself while you're eating. And a lot of people instantly, that's what they do because it's hot and it's also hot in Los Angeles, but it's also hot chicken in their mouth and they grab that fan and they use it. So that's like a marketing tool for me to make sure people walk away with something tangible in their hand where they can refer to that story and they see that African-American family on that picture and they know, okay, this is where a national chicken started. started with Prince family. Wow. And one more thing on the growth plan. What kind of time frame should people be looking for for when the next hot filled chicken might open somewhere? Are we talking about one year, five years? What's the range? Well, just in a couple of weeks, we're going to have our food truck is rolling out. Uh, we've got a food truck, so we're going to be wheels up and rolling just in a few weeks. I was on the truck, which is now complete, and it's ready to be wrapped. And what I mean by wrapped is our mobile food truck, which is a dual-branded food truck. It's Doolin Soul Food and Hotville Chicken. That wrap around that truck is going to signify both brands on four wheels 
and we are able to take this product pretty much anywhere we want to go. That's the next step. And then uh, we're actually looking in different areas of the state of California for other locations to actually be birthed. So with COVID right now, uh, it kind of put a little slowdown, a little speed bump yeah. in there, but it's not going to stop our momentum. It actually might be helping a little bit too, because uh, there are so many properties, unfortunately, so many restaurants that are closing down. One of my strategies is to always look for a turnkey location. And that's how I found this location. The current location that we're located in at 4070 Marlton Avenue in Los Angeles. This was a former restaurant that lasted, it was built five years ago. That business, the former tenant was here for about three years or so, closed down. We got it within a year and opened up in December of 2019. So it came ready, very turnkey, mm -hmm. second generation restaurant. And so uh, due to COVID-19, there's a lot of restaurants that are now vacant and they're seeking tenants. Uh, there are landlords out there owners who have had no income on properties that are just lying vacant due to COVID. Mm. So the opportunities we're, we're looking to seize a few, maybe within two years, five, year five, I'm hoping to have at least two to three locations in Southern California. That would be ideal for me personally. I've been talking to cousins and they're watching from back home in Tennessee. And I'm like, hey, you need to come to LA and visit. How about you come out and help me? <laughs> Honestly, Sydney, I don't see a Highville chicken in every state. I personally don't see that. I think that Highville chicken would lose its sense of family feel with oversaturation. Our family members are so involved in the business where we like to be able to have access to the customer and they get to not only walk out with that story in their hand, but they can actually walk out with a testimony saying, hey, I actually spoke to these people. I know them. They made me feel like I was part of the family, too. And that's why I go back over and over and over again. Uh, the other piece of our growth plan is we grow by giving. And we are very, very vested. Even though this location has only been open for a few months, we open by investing in the community. We do food projects right down the block, close to the elementary schools, the senior citizen housing complexes. And this was before COVID. It didn't take a pandemic to teach us to give. It's just a part of who we are. My family in mm -hmm. Nashville, I watched my aunt, my father, and my grandparents. They were always very giving people. And uh, the restaurant has the restaurant here. We've got notes on our walls. Even though we've only been around for a little while, we have notes on our walls that are saying, thank you for giving. Thank you for feeding us. You know, a lot of really very heart-wrenching stories and yeah. cute cars from little kids that are saying thank you. We grow by giving. We get the word out by giving. We can't feed everybody, but we're going to do the best we can with what we can while we can be able to grow the brand that way. So one thing that's interesting is, you know, you grew up in Nashville, but you've been in LA for a few years, I think. You didn't necessarily go move west to open up Hotville. Hotville, as you said, is new. So I guess the question is, because this idea has maybe germinated for a while in your head and in your heart, for that matter, were you always thinking, you know, like when you were younger, like 20s and like just starting out, that you would do this at some point? Or is there some opportunity that came up or some change in your life that came up that said, this is the time I want to build this restaurant. I want to create this outpost of our family in the West Coast. Wow, Sydney, that's a great question. And I 
remember as a child sitting at the table and listening to my elders, my parents and my aunts, they'd be talking about this chicken thing, particularly my father. He would talk about Nashville hot chicken in California. And I was born in California. I was raised in Nashville, Tennessee, around the outskirts of Nashville, Tennessee. And then I came mm-hmm. back to California. And I've moved back and forth probably like five times in my whole lifetime so far. Going back home was always like when I say home, Nashville, work related for me because I worked in the television industry with production for some 22 years. And I would go from California back to Nashville, back to California, back to Nashville. And I worked in the entertainment industry and doing production. And that allowed me to get around and actually see other parts of the world too. And uh, that was actually the motivating force is the reason why I moved so much. But other reason would be the fact that I had a family restaurant, a family business to help support too. And while I always thought prior to moving from Nashville in 2013 to LA, it was production that brought me back to LA, but I had a game plan. I started writing out an idea of how to get the family brand and this recipe and the experience of Nashville into other people's hands. And so it was like 2011 when we first started scouting and looking in LA and looking at buildings. And I started walking through empty restaurants. And I noticed that you know, nobody had Nashville hot chicken back then. The Nashville hot chicken wasn't a thing in LA back in 2011, 2010. We just didn't see it, we couldn't find it anywhere. But when I would travel to California and I talked to my aunt, talked to my father about it, it just ideas started taking on form. And I put it to paper and I created a business plan. I would share that with my family and we would all sit down and discuss how we would formalize this. And the name Highville Chicken came up. And so I knew back around 2012, I was going to be pivoting and making a plan to come back to L.A. 2013 is when I came to L.A. again. and started working on the business and the brand. I started doing some simple catering by myself. Like literally I would do like a hundred people all by myself. It would take hours. And I learned the art of doing the pop-ups and that started in 2016. And I was always working full-time Sydney in the television space. I worked full-time for a major television network and I always kept that as my day job. But on the weekends when I was off, I would get in the kitchen and I would fry, fry, fry a lot of chicken. And it would take you know, friends, family, uh, my church family, requests would come and another request. And I catered for friends of mine with LAPD and then some alumni from another university and things like that. And it just started to build itself. And everybody would yeah. say, okay, you need to find a building. And all that exercise and moving around pop-ups is a lot of 10 by 10 tents and learning the requirements for the city of LA and the business tax licenses. I just did my research and all the homework that I would encourage any business-minded person, somebody who wants to get into the business, not just a restaurant business, but if you're an entrepreneur, I would encourage them to do the research, ask the questions like I did, call the health department, look it up online, get all the requirements, start filling the paperwork out. And I suited myself, I situated myself with the posture of get it done. And my father has this this saying, he says, start out like you can hold out. And I heard that all my life. Start out like you can hold out. You can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. He would say things like that to me all the time. And I find myself repeating things like that in our kitchen now. But those kind of emboldened statements 
was the drive that pushed me. And then my family coming in to help. They saw the work that I was doing and they would come in to help. I would get a phone call from my Aunt Andre, who's very inspiring, to encourage me. I like what you're doing. Keep going. You know, and so so that's the fuel. That's the that's the wind and the sail to keep me going forward. The journey's been great, but I am excited about the opportunity. And I'm more excited about the fact that people have embraced Nashville Hot Chicken here in Los Angeles like it's their own. And they're connected and we're connecting with the community. We're able to take this and really sell it. And we're selling a lot of it. We're selling a lot of it. But I had to eventually stop what I was doing in the television industry. I had to just like stop working one day. Um, I tried to stop before I put the pause button on. Like to focus on Highville and the, the network that I worked for, the television network, they were so supportive. They're a catering client of mine, too. They uh, were very supportive and they allowed me to work not just full time. And then I dropped the part time and they were just like, just come to work anytime. <laughs> so that kind of support was helpful in getting me to where I am now. And Highville Chicken is everything to me. I plan on retiring doing this. When I was eight years old, I remember like that pickle bucket. And now that I'm 40 years past that, the pickle yeah. bucket is still present. We still use the pickle bucket. And we've got a quarter piece chicken. And you know, I'm doing it the way my great greats did it. And I plan to continue doing that. We've added some new stuff. We've got some new generation type of menu ads like tacos and taquitos. And it's all made with natural chicken. We added some new things to the menu that you wouldn't typically get with Nashville style hot chicken in its or original form. We do baked beans and some fun stuff like that. I can get your taste buds going. <laughs> One thing you said that was so interesting is about hard work. What was that expression again from your father that he would tell you all the time? If you can't stand it, he'd get out of the kitchen, but he would also say, uh, start out like you can hold out. Start out like you can hold out. That's right. Yeah, so that's what did like that mean to you? In our household, when my father would say, start out like you can hold out, that meant don't be a quitter, if you want to interpret it. In our family, within our four walls, my dad would make that comment. He was a football and a track coach, too. So you can imagine he's like a man with a whistle around his neck. (laughs) My father, Martin Prince, would make those kind of statements, and it literally meant get up, and if you intend to do something and you start doing it, don't quit. Finish the job the task don't come back in this house till it's done <laughs> i always heard that and so no matter what the little simple task might have been if we were working on anything if we were to join a uh, athletic team he literally would say start out like you hold out you better finish you better finish you better finish i could hear him saying that when i was on the track and we were running track and field even though my father wasn't my coach in my high school my father would be in the stands or next to the field, and he would say, you better finish, you better finish. And I could hear his voice pushing us. And so, you know, I had, there are the six in my family. I have five of the siblings, and all of us were athletic. And my father would say that to all of us. This I, I, team of mine is very much, you know, it's a, it's a workout. Doing this business, it's a workout. It's an exercise. So, you know, I'm, I'm holding out. Closing and quitting is not an option. You've got a lot of chicken to fry and a lot of mouths to feed. Yeah, quitting is not an option. And it made me think a little bit. The other day I saw, I don't know if you've seen this, the Quincy Jones documentary. I think it's on Netflix. It's a fantastic show. And he talks about a couple of points, his own father and the work ethic that his father believed in and what he learned. And Quincy Jones is legendary for 
working almost too hard because it got him ill on more than one occasion. But that's what it reminded me of, you know, and the lessons we learn from our dad, sometimes they're spoken in the way that you just described. And I guess the way Quincy Jones also just said, other times you just see it, you observe you know, my own dad, the alarm clock goes off at 3.30 in the morning. As a little kid, you stop hearing it, but you do hear it at a point. And then later you start to realize, wow, what was going on? Well, he was going to work. He was a blue collar worker and he took a bus to work and it took a long time to get to work. And he did it. He did it every single day. And, you know, as you get older, you, you admire it more than you might, you know, when you're a teenager and you just don't understand really what kind of sacrifice was made so that we would have a good life. He didn't say anything to me, but I heard that alarm go off at 3.30. And I, you know, he's passed now a number of years, over 20 years ago, but I'm never going to forget it. And that's another form of teaching and learning and what we learn. So when you talk about, you know, this legacy project and your parents and it goes all the way back, in your case, the grandparents and great-grandparents, I think it means a lot to people. It means a lot to me personally just to hear, and I don't really know you other than our conversation, <laughs> but I think people that have that in them, that depth of connection it's just a good thing. It's a healthy way to live, but I think it also helps people have more appreciation for what's around them. And, you know, that kind of gets me to another thing I wanted to ask you about that we didn't touch on yet, other than a brief mention, which is COVID. You opened the restaurant, you said December 17th in 2019, where literally three months later, almost to the day, I guess, everything stopped. And so my question to you is, the day that you had to close the restaurant, what did that feel like? Just not what you did, but what did that feel like to you? It must have just been very difficult. And you had to think about so many things and so many people at the same time. Can you take us through a little bit about what that was like that day? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. COVID-19 was a blind uppercut. We didn't see it coming. I've never had to close a restaurant due to COVID because closing was not an option. I was determined to stay open and I shed a lot of tears and still cry about it because there's some days where it's like, oh boy, we're struggling. This is a low sales day, low sales week. But we started in December of 2019 and we were running strong. I mean, out of the blocks, Hussein bolts down. I mean, full spread, ready to break a record. You know, our monthly goals were exceeded each month as we were starting the business. And by March 15th, Everything was gravy. It was literal gravy. Everything was fine. We had experienced a few hiccups. Uh, we were working the kinks out of our operation and our service style here at the restaurant as we were introducing this new concept, a new menu to a brand new area. In Los Angeles had never heard of National High Ticket. They never tasted it before. And so we we're introducing this new business to this new area and, you know, like moving into a new house where you're learning how the walls are kind of settling and you hear the different creeks and stuff. We like we had just moved in and we were still learning how the whole house operated too. So there was an announcement made by our mayor, Mayor Eric Garcetti on March 15th. That happened to be a day that I was actually open. And that announcement said that due to COVID-19, all dine-in restaurants would cease to do indoor dining. And they would have to go with a 100% takeout and or delivery model. No indoor dining. And that was going to be effective the morning of March 16th. Well, March 16th fell on a Monday and I happened to be closed. So that <laughs> was the only moment that I was closed, but it wasn't due to COVID. I was always closed on Monday. But I was actually able to sit down and think. And I contacted my business partner, Greg Doolin, who owns the Doolin Soul Food Restaurants. And 
we sat down and we literally like, what are we about to do? What does that mean? And of course, we had to jump on the phone with other colleagues in the industry. Greg Doolin's a part of the board for the California Restaurant Association. And so, of course, you can imagine there's a flood of emails and phone calls and text messages because this announcement just went out. Kim, you just opened your restaurant. What are you going to do? I got uh, contacted by LA Times and Eater of Los Angeles and you know, all those other food publications and journalists and stuff. We've done all these great write-ups on Hotville and the New York Times and the Guardian and the BBC. They contacted me. Hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You just opened. And I said, I'm going to keep frying chicken. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Because closing wasn't an option. I have young African-American males and women that work here. And school had ceased on a dime for them. They couldn't go to their campuses anymore. They were working part time and they all looked and they said, Miss Campbell, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? Do I come to work tomorrow with our schedule changing? And so, me being a sleuth that I am, I researched and researched, read every email that I got from the health department about our protocols and what we're supposed to do. And you know what I did, Sydney? I opened wow. on Tuesday, the 17th of March, and we've been crying ever since. So, while we've made some adjustments and some pivots, closing has not been an option for us. I contacted my vendors and the different suppliers that I have who were going through similar adjustments and changes themselves to make sure that our suppliers were coming. Our chicken delivery was going to be adjusted. We didn't get chicken deliveries every day anymore. We were going to get them every other day and eventually two times a week. And I had to make adjustments for that. So I will say the challenges have been great trying to save and penny pinch. You know, even to the degree of like, wow, do we take something off the menu where we're to save some money? Like those are kind of challenges I've been faced with. You know, do I have to lose any workers? Things like that. Those are difficult decisions to make in this type of business and this type of climate or the environment that ran with a, a global pandemic staring you in the face, literally. Then you have to protect mm-hmm. yourself too, right? You got to protect yourself. I've got all these workers to protect. We had a staff of 26 at the time, and we lost like four people in a week. It wasn't due to COVID. Those workers made a decision, oh, I need to go back home and tend to my family. I have to move away. So different workers who were here, they were in college, and they were from out of town. Their families were calling them to move back home. So I had a number of people resign immediately. And so it's just been a life struggle for everybody dealing with COVID. You personally have to protect yourself. So we implemented like all the precautionary measures and cleaning the restaurant and having it disinfected. And oh my gosh, I can talk all day long about the different changes and protocol that we had mm-hmm. to do that's required and mandated by the health department. But it's every day it's a personal adjustment, you know, wearing a mask every day. There's times where I walk through the restaurant and one of my workers would say, Miss Kim, you don't have your mask on. And I was like, I don't, because it literally feels like the straps around my ears. I feel like I have a mask on all the time. I'm like, oh my God, it's not there. And so I'd like run and grab it. But, you know, here it is. We're what, six, seven months in? Never knew that COVID was going to last this long. The effects of COVID would last and impact my business this long. And it's impacting every industry. And I don't know how long it's going to last. We're, we're planning. And anticipating that we need to be like this maybe another 12 months from now. That's mm-hmm. what I have in my mind. We're preparing to keep wearing masks and face shields and implementing, you know, weekly and quarterly 
disinfecting um, processes for the entire restaurant. Mm-hmm. I've been told there were some announcements made recently in the month of October that we would be having some reopenings. Indoor dining hasn't been cleared just yet for the city of Los Angeles, but some other opportunities for like indoor shopping, things that will help boost my business because we're located on a mall property. That would be great because there's a movie theater here. There's a major mall here and it's just steps away from my door and that brings a lot of traffic. So whatever percentage of capacity they're able to open up at, that's going to help my business. But even when indoor dining does come back, Sydney, I'm not too optimistic about just opening my doors and letting people come back in and sit down. There's a bunch of protocols that come with that. Got to get signed off for it first. I've already gone through the plan with the health department of my seating capacity indoors and how we should set our seats up. And we've already got that game plan arranged. But I like to just watch and see how people respond to it, you know. Yeah, I mean, people are planning into a lot of 2021, but I'm more optimistic. I don't know why. I have no inside information on anything on this. I just feel like I've never seen efforts towards so many vaccines by so many leading global companies ever. It's never happened, actually. It's not, I haven't seen, no one's ever seen it. And I think we're going to start to see in early 2021 vaccines available. And over the course of maybe two or three months, Anyone who wants one is going to have a chance to get one. You know, the other thing that obviously has happened, it's almost like a second pandemic, is the national and even global movements that have happened that are kind of long overdue where there's this recognition among multiple audiences of the role and impact of institutionalized and systemic racism, and then protests in the streets. Two questions about it. Have you been affected by that? And then secondly, as an African-American entrepreneur and business uh, leader, How do you think about what we're seeing now, especially in America, but even in other countries as well? The impact of the current movements of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the different uh, unfortunate police-involved shootings and the killings of African-American men and women, uh, the the, the cases and the the results of judge, jury, and the convictions and the failure to convict all the protests, uh, and some have been close to my neighborhood, uh, but not in my neighborhood. Uh, I've seen boarded up windows and, and business, and business and businesses that uh, were hit real hard by uh, protests that turned pretty violent, uh, the looting and whatnot, and hearing from other restaurant colleagues who have had to you know, put wood up to their doors and windows and got Black Lives Matter stickers in their, in their windows. Um, hot grilled chicken hasn't been touched. I didn't worry about people coming through the neighborhood, tearing everything up. Where we're located happens to be where the Rodney King riots uh, of 1992. I don't know if there's a name for that, but the riots of 1992 that hit South Central Los Angeles due to the Rodney King. That's right. I was living in Los Angeles actually at that time, so I remember it quite well. Yeah, well, we're right off Crenshaw Boulevard, and and the effects of the 1992 riots still are visible. To this day, uh, there are businesses that never were able to reopen again, and different buildings that were left vacant and blighted, and see the burns on the buildings that were on fire, like all that. You can still see that right now on Crenshaw Boulevard. However, we were fortunate that while protests and marches were conducted around our restaurant, we marched right past us. It was very peaceful and supportive. 
And those who, who knew about hot grilled chicken during those protests, they would come in and order food and they were able to, you know, relieve themselves and get some rest and cool off for a second and get something to drink. So uh, I, I was happy that we didn't have to, you know, clean up anything or didn't have anything taken or anything like that. However, it's important for a business like mine as a, as a young woman, as a black female entrepreneur in the city of Los Angeles, that growth strategy that I mentioned earlier, where I mentioned grow by giving, being invested in the community and having a face in the community where people know who you are and they know that you give and they know that you care has everything to do. I don't do it to get something back, but I do it because it's important for us to invest in our community. Where Highville is located is predominantly African-American, historically known to be we're surrounded by uh, the View Park community, the Mert Park community, Exposition, uh, West Jefferson, uh, the Adams District. All those areas are predominantly African-American. Uh, the black and the brown communities are very much uh, visible here, but this area is undergoing gentrification too. And so the rise of all of these protests and, and the voice of all the people now, during COVID, even, it's interesting that all that happened, like, right now, but it's not a new thing. So it means, like, you know, systemic racism has been an ongoing thing in this country for hundreds of years. And I will say regarding hot grilled chicken and tying it to my family's legacy with Nashville style hot chicken. I mentioned that Nashville style hot chicken started back in the 1930s when they first opened up their business. Well, that was in the middle of the Great Depression. Jim Crow laws, star deep segregation in the city of Nashville. The family's first restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee, was in the segregated part of town, and white patrons had to come through the back door. And after the black patrons sat in the front of the restaurant, and the white patrons sat in the back of the restaurant because it was a house. The kitchen was in the center of the house. And so if you can kind of visualize what that looked like back in the 1930s, well, that was how things operated back then. Yeah. The requirements. And so uh, we couldn't eat together. We could eat the same things we could eat together. But the family started the business then. In the middle of all of that, the Great Depression, 1930, 1936 to be exact. And I always would say, if they could do it then, surely the chicken can be successful now. The family's business is still up and going. We've been driving ever since. We've been frying ever since the 1930s. And they haven't quit. So I don't have any quit in me. I know that there's some other challenges that we get to face up the road. We're doing everything we can to stay healthy. Doing everything we can to stay healthy. Doing everything we can to keep our doors open and serve the community. It's more than one ball to juggle when it comes to owning a restaurant. But um, we're going to keep giving what we can. We're going to keep doing all we can. We're going to keep frying chicken. And we're going to keep ourselves healthy. We can pass this on to the next generation. Remember, I got a little Kim, and she works here, and I want her to be able to be an owner one day and have keys of her own, her own restaurant one day. Uh, so she's interested in the business, and that'll be the fifth generation prince uh, moving the back wow. door. Yeah, that's what happens when you're talking about legacy. It's a natural thing that you think of, including your own daughter. Thank you yeah. for sharing that perspective. Absolutely. A legacy is not a legacy if it dies with you, right? 
<laughs> you know, it's actually a big issue for restaurants where the restaurant is known for a famous chef. And the chef, like all of us, will not live forever. And then what happens? And I know that for some big name restaurants, you know, around the world, that's something that they deal with. And they've got to figure out how to extend the brand that goes beyond them as an individual into something more of a concept. You've got the advantage of already having the concept, as you've described it, the Hotville Chicken, the original Nashville hot chicken. But it's interesting that it is an issue for a lot of restaurants. We're just about out of time, but I have one last question I want to ask you. And it's a question I like to ask all of uh, my guests on the Sidcast, and it's about advice, but this is specifically advice to yourself. If you could magically go back in time to when you were 21 years old and kind of lean over to the 21-year-old Kim Prince and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to do or not do or think about, if there's one bit of advice that I want to give you, what would that be? I've never been asked a question like that before. I would share with myself to um, keep the faith, stay prayed up, and maybe don't kiss too many frogs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a wonderful relationship and I'm in a dating scenario that's a great, great relationship. And I love the relationship that I'm in, but I kissed too many frogs along the way and haven't been successful, haven't been down the aisle yet, haven't gotten married before. And uh, that's something I look forward to doing one day, but I would probably lean over and tell myself that I kissed too many frogs on the journey. Just wait for the right one to come along. He's coming. I'm glad I got him now. Yeah, uh, that's great. That's funny also. Kim, thank you so much for sharing that perspective about let's not kiss too many frogs along the way, but also <laughs> kind of a very nice, very nice ending to our conversation. I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you. I can't wait for you to come up with some mail order system that enables me on the East Coast to get some of that hot filled chicken. But that's a tough thing to do, given how it comes out fresh and hot and fried food doesn't stay for a long time, I don't think. Yes, but maybe true. you'll come up with some method or some system. I'd love to try that. And, and if not, I'll get to L.A. when the world lets me get to L.A. and I'll drop by and say hi to you in person and enjoy. I don't know about the super hot version, but I'll enjoy one of them. Well, I think I got you pegged. Uh, I'll probably have a Music City medium waiting for you. Just let me know if you like white meat, dark meat. And like, can give me a good old juicy breast quarter, a leg quarter, and we'll have it ready for you. Got to try our shawl chicken sandwich. We'd love for you to try that and get your take on it. And if you happen to be someone who loves fish, we've got amazing fried fish. Amazing fried fish. And we do that at different heat levels, too. But I think you probably can handle our Music City medium. Oh boy, the expectation has been raised for me. I'm getting nervous, but <laughs> I'm also getting really hungry from this conversation. So I better go find something to eat. It won't quite be as good as what you've got, but I'll do the best I can. Kim Prince, thanks so much for spending the time. It's been such a fun conversation. I really appreciate it. Oh, great. Good talking to you too. Take care and be safe out there. Yeah, you too. Take care. Thank you for listening to the SITCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesitcast.com. Or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. 
The Sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.